Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 245 of Forgotten Classics, the finale, the grand finale of Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade. First, I have no podcast highlight, but what I do have, since this podcast is about books we love more than it's about podcasts, and heaven only knows, at episode 245, you've got a lot of extra podcast highlights you can check out. I'm going to tell you about three different books I'm reading. They're current, they're right now, you can get them at the store or get the audio for one of them if you'd rather listen. And to me, all three are unique. So, the first is The Big Book of Christmas Mysteries. Edited by Otto Penzler from Black Lizard Books. I think I might have told you before about the Big Book of Ghost Stories and the Big Book of Adventure Stories. Also edited by Otto Penzler, where he mines all kinds of good old pulp magazines and books that are out of print or difficult to find to get these short stories that go into these huge books. And I do mean huge. They'll have eight or nine hundred pages typically. The books themselves are really wonderful. I love the feel. They've got that pulp type of paper inside, but the binding is good, so you can just let it lie flat to any page. And the covers are very durable, uh, colorful, and I don't know, there's some kind of texture on there I really like. Anyway, that's not the point, is it? Although it helps. But the Christmas Mysteries book has really old stories, but it also has some very current stories from very new authors. As always, he's divided these stories into sections, you know, a classic little Christmas, a noir little Christmas, a scary little Christmas. And then before each story, he'll have a short summary of the author's career and where this Christmas story first appeared. You'd think once Christmas is done that I wouldn't really care about Christmas mysteries anymore, but there's something about these that seem timeless. Maybe it's because there are all kinds of mysteries. Locked room mysteries, burglar-type mysteries, mysteries from the bad guy's point of view, gangster mysteries. Some of them go along very typical Christmas lines. Some of them happen at Christmas, and that's the only connection. I'm dipping into them just every so often because I don't like to sit down and just read a huge book of short stories end to end, but I dip into this quite a bit. It's really a great collection. So there's that. The second book is one that my mother just held a deathbed threat over my head. Not that I've maybe left too many of her book ideas on my to-reads list without ever reading it. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. But she basically pushed this book, The Rosie Project, on me, and it is delightful. I've only read the first few chapters, but I am already laughing out loud all the time. And essentially, it is a book written first person from the point of view of Dr or professor, I think it's Dr. Don Tillman, who has Asperger's and has decided he needs to find a wife to have a good life. And this is his story. 
normally that sounds kind of corny and maybe like it's in poor taste, but so far it is knocked down, drag out funny. And I don't know if this guy just seems to understand that mindset well, if he himself has a touch of it, or if he, you know, I guess if not, he's just a great author, but you kind of feel like you're getting a better understanding too of this very different way of thinking, the very different way the brain processes everything. As I say, at this point, I'm just laughing my head off. It is so good and not at all condescending that I can see. So we shall see. But I wanted to give you a heads up on that. And when I went and looked, it was for sale on the Kindle. My library has it. I know yours will. Mine has 60 people on the waiting list. Since my mother was threatening me with sitting at her deathbed, trying to finish it so I could fulfill a promise to her, (laughs) at which we both just burst out laughing like crazy, I thought I better get it now (laughs) for the $1.99 on the Kindle. That is the book, by the way, that is available on Audible or my library has the audio CDs. Many less requests for that for some reason. And the sample I listened to was really great sounding. I think I'll be reading a short sample of the book as Lanyap soon, just because it cracked me up so much. (laughs) I just want to share it. The third book is one that is not even possible to put into an e-reader, much less on audio. The book is titled S, period, (laughs) by J.J. Abrams and Doug Dorst. Hope I'm saying that right. It's a fascinating book that is as much to me a work of art as it is something to read. What an interesting idea, and it's one that is worthy of J.J. Abrams, who is known for concocting his elaborate stories that feed on each other, such as Lost, which I quit watching after three seasons. But he's done a lot of other really stylish, interesting, um, well, movies like Star Trek Rebooted. He did uh, Alias, Person of Interest, those kind of things, which I do like. Anyway, the concept of the book is that this book was written in 1949, and the book itself looks as if It's a library book from 1949. It's got a classic old style cover. The layout is perfect. The paper's yellowed. It's got the library stamps all over it. And somebody has gone through as they were reading it and made notes in pencil. Somebody else, a young lady, picked the book up and wrote a note back to the person who wrote in pencil and left it on the library shelf. The person who wrote the pencil notes is writing back to her in black ink. And through their conversations in the sides, in the margins of the book, back and forth about each other and about the story, and also about the author, who is a very enigmatic man who has no past, evidently, or he's very secretive, I guess. The story is about a man who has no past. You get this situation where the story is weaving into what the people are saying and they are themselves enriching the story. And so it's really an interesting concept and it's beautifully carried out. And the last touch, which is what sends it over the top, is that this book has all kinds of things stuck in the pages here and there. Old newspaper article, postcard, 
um, picture of somebody, a wheel that you can use to find latitude and longitude. It's just full of this stuff. So as you go through the book and you find the things, that's an additional clue. So in a sense, it's almost seems like a game. And various people, when I looked at reviews, had said, well, here's the way I read it. I read the whole book, then I went back and read what's in the margins. Somebody else will say, no, here's how I read it. I read each chapter, then I went back and read what was written in the margins. Someone else will say yes, but you can see from when the ink changes color, they've gone back through the book more than once and made comments. So you have to save those for later, or they're giving clues. And so I sat down and started looking at the first chapter and was immediately fascinated by the voice of the two people in the side margins. I'm interested in these two people. I'm really curious about them. Somehow they're managing to communicate this really well. So is it a gimmick? Yes. Is it something that just pulls you in? Yes. The reviews look like people either love it or appreciate it without really liking the story or maybe finding the ending not quite what they want. I'm not sure about that. So we'll see what I think of it as I go. But I did want to let you know about it. It could be hard to find because evidently it came out in October when I guess everybody else in the world knew about it except me who pays no attention. And you can find it online in some places like Powell Books had some. So I got one because I wanted to know if my stuff in the book was in the right place (laughs) after being at the library. Anyway, so there are your three reading tips. Enjoy. Now, let's get back to Warrior Queen of Mars. Not nearly so elaborate, but definitely a good time and enjoyable, at least to me. And I think you're really going to love the way this ends up. It continues that pulp fiction, adventure, thriller, science fiction, exotic alien goodness that we've been getting so far. (laughs) Yeah, I do like it a lot. (laughs) So when last we saw our intrepid duo of Dr. Farmer, aka Tom, and Ken, Ken had been sent back to pick up the translating equipment and give the special message that will get him all kinds of help coming right away. And Tom was staying to see what else he could find out. And as we left him, he was opening the door. The door to what? We don't know. Let's find out. You've waited long enough. Let's dive in. And I'll definitely meet you on the other side. Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade Part 3 Inside a single small light globe was casting a feeble glow, revealing the place to be empty. He stepped in and closed the steel door behind him. Around him was a pattern of order and wartime complexity. A dozen anti-tank machine guns perched in their steel frames inside the perimeter of the circular stronghold. Racks of shell clips were stacked in vertical tiers. Tom took all this in grimly, 
If all the pillboxes were similarly equipped, the place could withstand a full-scale attack when manned. In the center of the room was an opening. It led to a circular well in which a steel staircase spiraled downward. The bottom of the staircase was visible. Tom went down slowly, setting each foot down on the next step with infinite care. A myriad of sounds crept to him from the underground labyrinth. Sharp sounds of metal, the murmur of voices, the dizzy speech melody of alien females. It all had the quality of coming from a distance rather than close at hand. Tom kept his eyes fixed below to the small area of the passageway where anyone who intended coming up the stairway must appear first. He froze suddenly as two figures came into view. When they passed out of sight without pausing or looking up, he relaxed. After a moment, he started down again, his legs feeling rubbery under him. He was fully conscious of his danger now. If he were seen, an alarm could be sounded that would alert the whole nest of pillboxes. If he escaped, he could be shot down by guns capable of churning the glacier on which they rested in their concrete emplacements to chipped ice in a few moments. Then why, he asked himself, didn't he follow Ken? Why not take the sensible course and let the Iceland and United States governments take care of it? A face rose in his mind. It was the face of the strange girl in Dr. Foster's motor sled, feigning unconsciousness but accepting him as an ally. The bond of understanding that had existed between them then hadn't seemed to have come into existence at all, but was just there. Tom forced her out of his mind, shaking his head. It wouldn't do to daydream. He would need all of his senses alert, or he wouldn't live to see her again. He reached the bottom of the spiral stairs. Which way should he go? He was standing in the intersection of two passageways. He could go in four directions. He listened intently, trying to place the direction of the various sounds. In one direction, there seemed to be total silence. He walked in that direction. The steel-lined passageway led in a straight line for nearly half a mile. At intervals of a hundred yards, it intersected passages running at right angles to it and at each intersection was a spiral stairway leading upward to a pillbox. There were no sounds now. This section of the maze under the fortifications seemed deserted. But now Tom came to the end of the passageway. His further progress was blocked by a steel door that covered the whole cross-section of the tunnel. There was a wheel in the center of the door from which rods radiated, firmly held in holes in the frame round the door. By spinning the wheel, the rods would draw in, leaving it free. Tom studied the door and decided it must be an ammunition storeroom. He spun the wheel. The door opened a few inches by itself. He left it that way and leaned forward, trying to see through the narrow opening. There seemed to be a continuation of the tunnel on the other side rather than a storeroom. He pushed the door open and stepped through, closing it and swinging the wheel on that side to bolt it again. The tunnel was different now. Instead of being prefabricated and bolted together in sealed joints, it was pieced together with welded seams. It soon began to slant downward, curving gradually to the right. There were iron bars tack-welded to the floor to prevent feet from slipping and a railing to hold onto. The silence was so absolute that he worried about the loudness of his breathing and the unavoidable scraping of his feet. 
He tried to estimate how far he was descending. Eventually, he was sure that he had gone down at least 500 feet below the surface. The passage ended with another door similar to the first one, with one difference. There was a peephole covered by a sliding metal plate. Tom slid it back slowly. To his disappointment, the other side was covered by a thick coating of ice as though water had dripped over it, freezing into a thick accumulation. Light filtered through the ice strongly, bringing images too greatly distorted by refraction to make out. As he studied them, he detected movement. He turned his head sideways and listened. Voices came faintly. Suddenly, a voice sounded near at hand, barely muffled by the door. It was an American voice. You'll get a flogging if Alex finds out you took time out to smoke, Mick, it said. Eh, lay off, Ralph, Mick's voice answered. Why don't you take a smoke yourself? I think I will, came the voice of Ralph. There were two minutes of silence. The ice over the peephole brought a flash of yellow light to indicate that Ralph was lighting a cigarette. They were just the other side of the door. Tom's heart beat loudly in excitement. What do you think of all this? Mick's voice came. I think we're in for trouble when they cut the warrior queen loose and thaw her out, Ralph answered. It may be a million years since she started out to conquer the world, but when she wakes up she'll be just as hot about it. The ones we've got so far are just buck privates in the Martian army, all except that one that got away. Yeah, Mick said, chuckling. <laughs> they cut her out first because she was in a cage on top of that mammoth while all the others were like statues of people in motion. She thought they would help her when she told them about the plans of the queen to subdue the earth. But she was plenty warlike when she found out they planned on thawing out the others and helping them, Ralph said. She still doesn't know it's been at least a million years since the ships landed them here. None of them do. They think the ships went back for another load of mammoths and girl warriors. I wonder what really happened, Mick said. They got a whiff of the sleep spray, Ralph said matter-of-factly. The experiments of that Russian scientist shows that when a person is frozen under its effect, he'll still be alive when he's thawed out. That proves it. Otherwise, at least the mammoths would be dead. The ice over the peephole suddenly gave way, falling with a clatter. Swiftly, Tom slid the cover in place. What was that? Mick's voice came nervously, muffled by the metal. Just some ice breaking loose, stupid. Ralph's voice answered tauntingly. Maybe it's someone coming through this door, Mick's voice sounded. If I had to do it over again, I'd never come up here in Iceland to hunt for uranium ore. You and me both, Ralph said bitterly. Tom slid the cover just enough to reveal a crack of light. The voices were louder. Ralph's voice became dreamy. Five years, he said. At least I think it's been five years. I have a wife and two kids back in Detroit. He uttered a snorting laugh. <laughs> They're living off my life insurance by now. Oh, Martha must be in high school and Jimmy is in the third or fourth grade. Maybe they even have a new dad and a half-sister or brother. Maybe, Mick said softly. Tom slid the peephole cover open farther. He could see clearly now. The two men on the other side of the door were leaning against the ice wall of the raw glacier itself, in a cubbyhole indentation where they couldn't be seen. They wore fur parkas. 
Beards covered their faces, leaving only their eyes and cheeks exposed. Past them in the distance was a huge cavern. It was at least two hundred yards across. On the far side, Tom saw a scene that made his senses reel. There were at least fifty men, all dressed in fur parkas, working with hatchets and small picks on a white wall of ice. Ten of them were concentrated on what appeared to be an ice statue of a mammoth, on which rode one of the Martian Amazon warriors. At another place along that fantastic wall of ice was a canvas tent that apparently covered something as large as a mammoth. Tom nodded his head. Under such a tent, the temperature could be raised gradually to thaw the creature out slowly. He turned his attention to the two men, Mick and Ralph, again. They were silent, puffing idly on their cigarettes and looking at their feet with faraway expressions lost in memories of home. Tom hesitated, then placed his lips to the opening in the door and his voice came in a whisper. Don't move or say anything, he said. This is a friend. Nod your heads if you hear me. He looked quickly. The two men had startled looks on their faces. They turned in his direction. He saw their eyes grow round. They had seen him, or at least his eye, in the hole in the door. There will be government troops here in a few days, Tom whispered. I've been listening to your talk. Could I open this door and you slip in here with me without anyone seeing you? The only thing that's kept us from doing that long ago, Ralph said, is the fact that there's no way to open it from this side. Tom waited for no more. He twisted the wheel. The door swung open. Ralph and Mick slipped through. There was wonder and hope in their eyes. You aren't a Russian at any rate, Ralph said. I'm Tom Farmer, Tom said, deciding not to carry on his masquerade as Frank Bond. I've heard of you the man named Mick said, nodding. You're the one experimenting with immortality? You should be interested in these Amazons. They claim to be immortal themselves. I surmised as much, Tom said, but there's time for that later. Do you know anything about the layout of things here? Do we? Ralph said. Listen, Dr. Farmer, for years we've had it all planned. A long time ago, we killed a guard, and one of us took his clothes and managed to roam all over the place before he was discovered. They shoved him back in with us because they need every slave they got, after they flogged him senseless. But every one of us knows where the ammunition dumps are, the food storerooms, everything. We have it planned down to the last detail how we do it, if we ever found an open door. They make us live down here in the ice cavern, throwing food in for us. Okay, Tom cut in. Now's our chance. Not now, Mick said. Tonight. They shut off the lights for eight hours every 24. When they do that, we can slip out. We'd better go back now, Ralph said. We can pass the word around so everyone's ready. Just be here with the door open. That's all. Tom watched through the peephole as the hours wore on. His eyes noted Mick and Ralph as they passed from one group of workers to another, whispering their message. As each man learned it, he looked in Tom's direction furtively. But work continued unabated, so that the Russian guards Tom could just make out on a platform halfway up the open shaft elevator would not become suspicious. He studied those guards, wondering how they could be so blind to what was going on. Perhaps they weren't. It worried him.
The elevator, Tom surmised, had been designed for the express purpose of lifting the mammoths to the surface. The whole setup, he now saw, was built for bringing the Martian invasion army back to life. It must have been started years ago. Ralph's statement that he had been here five years dated it as having been started before the war that brought about the collapse of the dictatorship. It was no wonder the Russians hadn't used Iceland as a stepping stone. They hadn't wanted to call attention to this secret operation. How careful they must have been. Thousands of tons of concrete flown in, other thousands of tons of steel, scientists and the cream of the most loyal men with the number three man of the dictatorship in personal charge. The white statue of the warrior queen was finally free of the main ice wall. A tent was lowered over it from above, the mechanism that lowered it hidden out of the range of the peephole. From the other tent, the limp form of one of the Martian girls had been carried to the elevator to be quickly lifted above, the elevator dropping almost immediately, empty again. Two hours after the tent was lowered over the warrior queen, she was carried out. It was that quick, but it would be since her body temperature was normally one degree below freezing. Tom wondered what the temperature of the ice was at this depth. It must be several degrees below freezing or the Martian women would have recovered consciousness ages ago, imprisoned in solid ice and unable to breathe. The warrior queen wore the same black fur two-piece outfit as the others, but in addition wore a long red cape. She was whisked up in the elevator. When it came down, one of the women warriors was on it. She walked across the ice floor until she passed out of range of the peephole. Half an hour later, she came into view again, leading a slowly lumbering mammoth. When they were on the elevator, it rose, creaking under the burden. Nothing more happened. The men in the cavern continued working, chipping away ice. The chips of ice were loaded into mine cars on a narrow gauge track strung across the uneven floor leading to the elevator. Although none of the cars were taken there, it was obvious that from time to time the ice chipped away was hauled to the surface and dumped somewhere perhaps scattered out so that it wouldn't be noticed from the air by any plane passing over. And finally there were shouted orders from the Russians above. The working men walked away from the elevator until they were out of sight. Half an hour later the lights went out, leaving a strange, eerie luminescence that Tom realized came from the ice itself brought down from the surface through many solid feet of glacier. He pushed open the door and waited. The lights in the steel-lined tunnel had gone out at the same time as the others. He waited just inside the door, and shortly the first figure appeared, stealing forward silently. "'It's me, Ralph,' came a hoarse whisper. "'Everything all right?' "'Yes,' Tom replied. Ralph chipped a piece of ice loose with a pick he held in his hand and tossed it far out in the cavern. It landed with a noise that could be easily heard." Soon after, other figures appeared. Let's move into the tunnel, Ralph whispered. Our plan is to move forward and make room for the others until the last man is in, then close the door and bolt it. That way we can't be attacked from the rear. Then we move out into the underground system, each man taking his objective just as we have drilled it into us. You're just going to stay out of the way. Tom led the way to the upper door with Ralph walking beside him. When he had opened it, he stepped aside at Ralph's whispered command. The silent men crept past him, each armed with a hatchet or ice pick. 
He counted them. There were sixty-three altogether. He wondered if it would be enough. Certainly the few Russians he had seen at Charlie's Hoden weren't all of them. There must be at least several hundred stationed here, and perhaps more if additional dictator faithfuls had fled here when the regime collapsed. When the last man had crept past him and vanished down the passage into the maze of underground tunnels, he stepped back into the passageway leading downward, prepared to close the door and wedge the wheel lock if any Russians should appear. The silence continued. He thought of the warrior queen. Pity welled up inside him for her and her hosts of female warriors. He knew from his geology that when she had landed here, Iceland had been part of the great northern continent, stretched across the Atlantic from America to Europe. The world had been young. Her mammoths had been armed to fight the reptilian giants. The great ice sheet had made the northern hemisphere a land of promise with its freezing temperature. Now, as she took her next breath, with no conscious realization of the passage of the centuries since her last one, she would not know that all there was for her to conquer with her forces was a few hundred square miles of small island, and that when she tried it she would bring the whole modern world down on her. Suddenly the air was shattered by the sharp report of a shot great distance away, followed by a scream. Immediately after, sirens began to scream their alarm. Tom swallowed nervously. The battle was on. Had he done right? Some of those men who had been slaves would be killed. They were innocent. Wouldn't it have been better to wait until trained armed forces came? The memory of those anti-tank machine guns rose in his thoughts. Blood had to be spilled in any case, and this way, if the slaves succeeded, every life it cost would save perhaps dozens of soldiers. The wail of the sirens rose to a deafening scream. Tom saw a man pause at an intersection in the tunnel fifty feet away, raise a gun with his attention fixed on the passage to the left. A deafening roar sounded above the sirens, and the man fell. Another man appeared, looked Tom's way and waved his arm, then ran on. Tom felt better. The slaves were armed. Suddenly the noise of the sirens died down. It was sudden, indicating a cut line, since the siren that produced the sound broadcasted over a loudspeaker network. The sounds of shots that had been drowned out by the siren could be heard. From their rapidity there must be several pitched battles raging in different directions. Then, seemingly at a signal, the shooting stopped. Thinking it perhaps only a lull, Tom waited for it to start again. When it didn't, hope and despair struggled with each other. Had the captive workers been wiped out, or had they gained the upper hand with the Russians surrendering? He decided to go at least as far as the first intersecting tunnel and try to find out. When he got to it, he looked both ways. He saw a body a few feet away. It was one of the Russians. He went to it and picked up the heavy automatic lying on the metal floor near an outstretched hand. Straightening, he glanced quickly behind him to make sure no one was in sight. When he looked around again, he blinked his eyes in amazement. Disbelief made him glance down at his feet. The body had vanished. The tunnel had vanished. He was standing in snow. The heavy gun had simply ceased to exist in his hand. He lifted his head again, comprehension dawning. He had taken a whiff of the sleep spray. 
and before him stood the warrior queen, complete with her scarlet cape, flanked by a hundred or more of her warrior maids. And to either side and behind him stood men, the workers from the ice cavern and the Russians. On all their faces was a look of peaceful repose. Only he had recovered. Tom looked around at the ring of mammoths that surrounded the whole group facing toward him. On the back of each was a girl gripping a long, spear-like rod of utterly black substance. Bitterness crept into his thoughts. He had never given the warrior queen a thought. Of course her female soldiers had been marking time, waiting until their queen was thawed out so she could command them. The revolt had been three-sided. The Martian warriors had used some of the sleep spray, probably dropping it in the ventilation system. He had recovered first because he had breathed in less of it than the others. His eyes returned to the regal figure of the queen. Pity welled up in him again. How quickly her dream of conquering the world would be shattered. A singing voice uttered a series of dizzily cascaded notes. The eyes of the queen and all the other girls turned on Tom. It had been noticed that he was awake. The warrior queen uttered a swiftly speeded melody, motioning him forward. He walked toward her, wondering what would happen. Would he be killed? He came to a halt ten feet away from her. He studied her. Her figure was as perfect as that of the others. Her face utterly beautiful, but different in various little ways, as are all human faces. She uttered another series of notes questioningly. Tom shook his head. I speak this way, he said firmly, just to show her a sample of the difference. The warrior queen arched her head, listening in surprise as he spoke. Then she half turned her head and darted a few rapid notes at the girls behind her. They replied. Tom surmised they had told her of the strange speech of the native earthlings, but she hadn't believed them. There seemed to be some distraction among the mounted girls on the opposite side of the circle of mammoths. They had been twisting around and looking away toward the south. Now they suddenly burst into excited song-talking. The object of their interest appeared, coming between two of the mammoths into the circle. It was one of the warrior girls. She gave the huddled, unconscious men a wide berth and approached Tom. He recognized her as she came closer. It was the Martian girl he had met at Charlie's Hoden. She stopped abruptly, recognizing him. Her expression softened. She walked up to him and reached out, touching one cold finger to his forehead gently, then drew back. Her eyes turned away from him. He followed her gaze and received another surprise. The warrior queen and all her female soldiers were prostrate in an attitude of obeisance. Tom looked from them back to her. She uttered a singing command. Instantly, the Amazon girls arose. Only the warrior queen remained prostrate. And as the girl walked with slow grace over to her and touched a finger to her bare shoulder, Tom began to realize that everyone had had it wrong. The supposed warrior queen was in reality the equivalent of a general, and the girl who had been in a cage on the back of a mammoth was the queen. For several minutes the air was filled with the rapid sing-talk, the real warrior queen doing most of it. From the looks the others cast to the south in the direction from which she had come, they were discussing something. Could it be kin with the reinforcements? Tom stepped forward and tapped the queen on the shoulder. Look, he said, you mustn't fight, they'll be friendly. 
He groaned at their looks of puzzlement. It was impossible for them to understand him. The queen spoke to her general, who sang out a loud command. Part of the circle of mounted mammoths turned and started toward the south at a slow but distance-covering gait. In the gap formed by their departure, Tom could see a mass of moving figures several miles away. The figures resolved into moving army tanks. His heart sank. The guns in those tanks could wipe out the Martians easily. It would be slaughter. Desperately, he gripped the queen by the shoulders and shook her. It had been too quick for any of the others to stop him. When he released her, there were gasps of horror rising from all sides. She stared at him, a strange expression on her face. He shook his head, saying, No! He pointed toward the mammoths, racing to the south, and made a gesture of calling them back. She continued to stare at him. He remembered how she had come up to him and touched his forehead. It had been a Martian sign of friendship. He reached out and touched her forehead in the same way, looking into her eyes pleadingly. Then he pointed to the riders to the south again and repeated his gesture of calling them back. Decision appeared in her eyes. She uttered a sing-song order. There was a moment of silence. Then a loud chorus of voices singing the same notes rose, loud enough to carry for miles. To Tom's relief, the mammoths and their riders stopped, turned around, and started back. There followed days of increasing activity. Tom had gone to meet the army of tanks that had been housed just outside Reykjavik since the war. He had been recognized. Ken had climbed out of a tank and rushed to him. "'You son of a gun!' he exclaimed happily. "'All my worry for nothing. You don't have a scratch. Why the devil didn't you tell me that Joe sent me rigmarole would enable me to speak directly to the president himself?' Why didn't you tell me you were Dr. Farmer? The telegraph man knew it. Didn't you trust me? After that had come a half hour of ticklish sign language that had convinced the Martian girl warriors that they would not be molested. The Russian renegades were given good doses of the sleep spray and loaded into tanks which sped south to lock them up for deportation to Russia. Some of the workers went too but many of them elected to remain as teachers to show the coming army of workers how to chip the rest of the Martian army out of ice and bring them to life. The lieutenant commanding the tank corps rapidly took command of the whole setup. Tom, finding himself with nothing to do, soon sought out the Martian queen. When they met, they realized they had been looking for each other and laughed. It was the first he had heard one of the Martians laugh and it surprised him in its normalcy. From then on, they were together most of the time. The device he had ordered to enable him to talk the song language of Mars hadn't shown up yet. He soon found out it was just as well. He gave the queen the name Marcia, M-A-R-T-I-A, and she quickly learned how to form sounds with her mouth by studying the positions of his tongue and lips. She was delighted when she first learned to pronounce the name he had given her, and also his. She would say, Tom, and touch his forehead with a finger. Ken kept Tom up on developments. The Russians had flown in thousands of tons of hay and stored it in vast vaults in the glacier. That was the source of food for the mammoths. There were also ammunition dumps and food stores sufficient for an army for many years. But most of the time, Tom and Marcia paid little attention to what went on around them. 
They were developing a system of picture writing by which they were learning more about each other and about the things they each wanted to know. It was slow, but eventually Tom managed to make her understand the extent of the changes in the earth since she and her subjects had landed. It amazed, then depressed her. Then she seemed to draw aloof from him in her mind. Her interest became more intellectual than personal. Laboring under this strained relationship, Tom painstakingly drew pictures to tell her of his experiment in immortality. She understood the pictures of atoms and molecular formations he drew. Slowly she began to comprehend what he was telling her. When full realization came, she threw off her reserve, pointing to herself and then him, and nodding vigorously. Now she began to tell her own story. The earth had been uninhabited by man so far as the Martians had known. They had gained space travel, and scouts had brought back tales of the large inhabitable areas of the planet. They had come, landing many separate forces. Hers had been one of the last to leave Mars. Colonies were already in existence when she came. As she portrayed that part of the story, her eyes suddenly widened. She took another sheet of paper and hastily drew a series of pictures. Tom translated their meaning in his mind. She had said that he must be a direct descendant of the original Mars colonizers. It was true. Tom realized that. The remains of mammoths in the northern ice found all over the Arctic, the lack of a missing link in man's ancestry, the existence side by side of fossilized skeletal remains of highly developed modern man, beside those of man-like animals still too far removed from modern man to be called an ancestor. And during this mutual exchange that brought out the whole story of man's past and his origin on Mars, Tom felt himself drawn more and more to Marcia. She had sketched the future progress of his experiment in immortality. He knew that in another century he would be as she was, with a body temperature near zero, and that barring accidental death, he would live many more centuries. Yet with all this, something he couldn't understand was troubling him more and more. Marcia noticed this finally. Tom, she said. He looked up at her. Her face showed tender affection. She reached out and touched his forehead. As her finger touched him, he realized what was troubling him. He reached up and took her face between his hands and pulled it toward him. She was unresisting, curious, then delighted. The End Listening to this, it occurred to me, no wonder Marcia was delighted if a touch on the forehead was the equivalent of a kiss. <laughs> There's a huge difference, I'm just saying. Also, where are all the Martian men? This is kind of crazy. But anyway, that's not the point of the story. It's just an entertaining story. I especially was intrigued by the idea of this army of slaves underground in the glacier chipping away at the ice, thinking, how many uranium prospectors go to Iceland? Eventually, weren't people going to notice that all these men are missing? I mean, surely a lot of them, like the one, had to be married and having people turn up 
I don't know, missing persons requests or something. But I just kept thinking it's just like a James Bond movie. The way the Martians are dressed, the underground cavern, the Russians with the machine guns. And well, okay, James Bond didn't have, you know, the Martians. (laughs) But he had a lot of women intriguingly dressed in those movies. You have to admit. So there's not a lot to say about it. It was good fun. And actually, considering the story and the times, it was good, clean fun. They might not have thought that when the story came out, but we know it now, don't we? We know how much less clean it could be. Speaking of Martians, it reminded me of one extra book that I meant to tell you about. I'm listening to this. I got it on my Audible monthly credit, which is just like a wonderful, wonderful gift every time I get it every month. I've seen a lot of people saying how much they enjoyed this book. It is essentially a book about a stranded astronaut on Mars. It is definitely hard science fiction in that there are so many facts that this story is woven around, and it is just a story of survival. In fact, it made me think of, was it a book or was it just a cartoon? Wasn't there something called Robinson Crusoe on Mars? That's what keeps popping into my mind. Nevertheless, to get back to the point, Mark, this astronaut, was part of the NASA team, which is set in the future, of course, where they're doing manned missions to Mars. And he was a biologist and mechanical engineer. Well, actually, he is that in the story. A freak dust storm comes up, and he is blown away with an antenna sticking in him. The rest of the crew has to leave. Their spaceship, whatever it is they're using, is going to get blown over otherwise, and they head back to Earth, which is a maybe 11-month journey. Well, guess what? (laughs) We're listening to the log of Mark, because he didn't die. And it was truly a freak accident, and he doesn't blame anybody. And he just feels darned lucky that they had set up everything to live there for a while before they had to take off and leave. So he's got enough food for six people, seven people, for 30 days. He's got the potatoes and things that they were going to cook a Thanksgiving dinner with. He has all these things. So he has to figure out, can I survive for the four years it's going to take before the next Mars mission shows up. Because what he knows is all the radio antenna blew away. There's no way for him to contact NASA. There's no way for NASA to even know he's alive. He's on his own for four years. So in a sense, it's like MacGyver in space. The really great thing about it is that this author has a definite sense of humor. Mark is funny. He'll talk about things and say, well, and in this ongoing science experiment, which I call, does Mark get to live? And so you're kind of laughing with him. It's the way he copes with everything, of course. And then the author also has a sense of humor that shows up in such things as when Mark is looking through everybody's stuff saying, well, I need some kind of entertainment. Everybody was allowed to bring along unlimited digital entertainment And so he says, oh, good, the commander had all these episodes of television shows. Oh, great. It's all 1970s sitcoms. I guess I'll start with Three's Company. (laughs) 
And when you hear him talking about the music selections, you're just going to laugh too. It's not just from Mark's point of view. There are other points of view, which I'm not going to ruin the story in case somebody wants to read it or listen to it. But there's enough depth from different positions that the story doesn't get boring, at least from my point of view. I want to see what has to happen for Mark to make it off of Mars. So that's your fourth and your bonus recommendation. We will be beginning H. Ryder Haggard's book, The People of the Mist. Get ready for politically incorrect adventure in Africa. It's not really as bad as it could be. I've read worse. (laughs) But I am going to have to be repeating the same warning at the beginning of a lot of stuff. (laughs) I had a friend who listened to Uncle Tom's Cabin, and she said, I am so sick of that warning that you have at the beginning of every single one. And I thought, yes, but if I didn't have that, that would be the one that somebody would pick up and listen to and completely unravel over because things were looked at so differently then than they are now. So I will try to keep it short, but we're going to have to have a similar kind of warning at the beginning of this stuff. However, you know, I would not be reading it to you if it weren't a rattling good yarn. So I think you're going to enjoy the heck out of it. I'm going to enjoy reading it, that's for sure. And on the home front, there is cold weather. Well, not nearly as cold as in most of the country. As always, we are in Texas. But the really bad ice storms skipped Dallas. I guess the cold air came down and pushed that warm air further south. And so Austin and all these places had it, you know, New Orleans, Atlanta, but not us. It was just cold. And I'll take dry cold over wet, icy cold any old time. So other than that, I've just been doing tons of reading, as you know. Now I've got to finish some of these books. I have that problem. I get super enthusiastic and I just start all these things and jump from one thing to another. And then I have to stop and say, you know, I'm reading 15 books right now. This is just not right. Some of them are daily books, so that's not a big deal. But a lot of them are books where I'm like, wow, I really loved this till I stopped to read something else. I guess maybe I have a little problem with, oh, that shiny new thing, this shiny new thing. So I'm going to finish up or at least try to finish up some of these four books I told you about and maybe a couple of others. And then I'll let you know what I'm reading next. Let me know what you're reading or listening to or would like to hear on the podcast. If it's in copyright, that's problematic. But if it's out of copyright, I'll see if I can find it and look it over and see where it would fit in the schedule. As always, thank you for coming by and listening. I wouldn't be reading all this out loud otherwise, and I love reading it out loud. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.